everybody is fragile, everybody's human. Even a barmer, I'm sure, is, you know, a real pain to deal with at home. So there are no secular saints, and there are definitely no religious saints. There are only human beings. And rather than this being a depressing realization, it is the beginning of, of kind of friendship and a more humane world. You're listening to Doing It Right with me, Pandora Sykes, a podcast where I talk to experts about the myths, anxieties, trivialities, and trends of modern life. There's no such thing as the right life, but what might we be getting wrong? In this series, I'll be exploring outrage culture, arrival fallacy, and the perils of instant gratification, and lobbing some pretty big questions at my guests, like, why do human beings find change so hard? What would a more inclusive society look like? And what is the difference between optimism and hope? This is a podcast that looks at the little things and the big things and asks, what can we do to live life better? Not just for ourselves, but for everyone. Alain de Botton is a philosopher, writer, and the founder of The School of Life. The author of 11 books, including Essays in Love, which he published aged just 23 and which went on to sell 2 million copies, The Consolations of Philosophy, and How to Talk More About Sex, he has written about almost every subject under the sun. Love, sex, work, social status, leisure time, money, architecture, art, you name it, Alan's got something thoughtful to say about it. I have long been a fan of Alan's philosophy-infused life lessons, which managed to contextualise so much of what feels totally nebulous and terrifying in an extremely sensible and comforting way. I rung him up on a sunny spring day. You can hear the birds tweeting outside Alan's window, so enjoy that rather lovely little slice of nature, to talk about boosterism, the paradox of choice, and why moments of insanity are a key part of feeling sane. Many people who are at home and working from their computers will say things like, I'm doing a lot of work, but I'm missing the chat. I'm missing the office chat. Mm. And what do they really mean by that? Um, well, really what they mean is those little encounters of everyday vulnerability and humanity that you get alongside work in an office. Now, you know, one response, the kind of depressing or despairing vision of technology is we'll never get technology to do that. But imagine if we slightly rejigged how we're using the technology and, for example, tried to schedule in ahead of a meeting five minutes in which we would address some really personal and vulnerable material. Not, you know, what did you do for your weekend, but are you regretting anything at the moment? What are you scared of? Um, is there something you find hard to forgive? These sorts of topics, which I think could help employees to um, have a little human moment alongside the more functional moment of office life. So we're just needing to think much more logically and technically through the requirements that we have of the technology that we've built. That's really interesting what you're saying about how what we're missing is a social lubricant. You know, we're going straight into these Zoom meetings and then we're coming off and we're not having those, those moments of cohesion in between. I mean, I think that ultimately what we want is to be working with people whom we can relate to, not just as people that we're going to deliver a, 
a, a job to, but we're going to discover them as fully rounded human beings. That's what makes life and work fulfilling. Um, and, you know, we're in danger of forgetting all that nuanced bit that comes from seeing people's smiles, um, their, their pauses in a conversation, the, the digressions that they make. Now, there's no reason why technology shouldn't eventually get there and help us to capture that. We just, we're only remembering now what it is that we need. So you're speaking to a writer, you're a writer, you know, people like us, we spend all our lives trying to recreate the world in our minds and also suggest new worlds in other people's minds. So we're the last people to say, this can't be done remotely. Living can't be done remotely. Because when you love books, you know that living remotely, as it were, is is, is your kind of raison d'etre. That's how you function. So I'm sure that we're going to find ways of getting some of the richness of daily life into our virtual ways of communicating. The history of literature is just nothing else other than that. The ability to compress life into a dry old page and make it the most vivid thing in the world. So we're going to be able to do this with technology too. But as I say, we're still at the beginning of that journey. The idea of boosterism, that idea that everything, or at least the image of everything, can be boosted or made better, has flourished recently. Our own Prime Minister is the quintessential booster. In a 2015 debate, you argued that we are angry whenever we believe that we are promised paradise and get a traffic jam, lost keys, a disappointing relationship, or a less than optimal job. And I was really interested in this idea that even though rhetorically speaking, we've rejected the idea of perfectionism, you know, a lot of our cultural conversation right now is about being flawed or real or unruly, particularly for women. But at a deeper level, I think there is still this insidious idea that we have to create a certain way of living. Why is that so hard to shake off? I think it's hard to shake off because of science, because really for the last 250 years, um, the world has been dominated by science. Science has been the most impressive and amazing thing that humans have built. And, it, you know, it kicks in in, say, the middle of the 18th century. And in the age of enlightenment, we discover machinery, technology, the ability to transform inert matter and make it into a rocket, a train, a bridge, something amazing that is serving us. And I think we've fallen so in love with what science can do that we forget the, all the things that it can't do. You know, human beings are capable of moments of, as it were, perfection. We can create, you know, some amazing high points, the most beautiful song, an amazing dress, a fantastic piece of cake making, uh, a wonderful aeroplane. You know, you name it. We can, with sufficient hours of effort, create perfection. But it's open to none of us to have a perfect life. A perfect life is a very different thing. So we can create a perfect work, we can't create a perfect life. And all religions and older ideologies understood this. Buddhism tells us as its first rule, life is suffering, life is an imperfect business. Um, the Judeo-Christian tradition tells us about original sin. It, it sounds harsh, but it's actually a very humane way of looking at things. The, the invitation is to start to see ourselves, all of us, as not just accidentally and personally flawed, but generically and necessarily flawed. And that lets all of us off the hook. I mean, whatever, whatever, you know, whatever we've done wrong, there may be specific things, and all of us have done different things wrong, messed up different areas of our lives. But broadly speaking, we're all going to mess up something at some point because, you know, we're the descendants of those people who ate 
from the tree of knowledge. It's a fanciful story, but it's pointing to something that's active in all of our lives, our longing for perfection. It's like we've been in paradise, but we also know we can't quite reach it. Um, and then, of course, the ancient Greeks, in their understanding of the tragic nature of humanity, um, also gave us a useful perspective to look at failure and things that are less than perfect. For the ancient Greeks, um, all of life is prone to error. Even the most high-born, wise, supposedly knowledgeable people um, can make appalling small slips and bring down you know, ignominy and disaster on themselves and those that, that they love. And so these are constant reminders from culturally prestigious and also very wise sources to keep our perfectionist ambitions at bay, not for you know, all small things, but certainly for the larger blocks of our lives. Something will go wrong, don't quite know what it is, but it's definitely going to be something and it's definitely going to be big. And so we should be waiting for it at an individual level and at a societal level. It was never promised us that we could create a perfect world. You know, religions usefully put the perfect world in the next life. Even if you don't believe in a next life, um, place your hopes for perfection somewhere else. It's not going to happen here on earth with your partner, your job, your society, your prime minister. These are all the more humdrum, fallen bits of uh, life, and we are not to expect perfection. When you put it like that, it sounds really freeing. It's really comforting the way you talk about it. But it feels like the ramifications of failing to achieve something or of making a mistake feel so much more serious because they are preserved forever on the internet. You know, that, that whole saying about, oh, today's news is tomorrow's fish and chip paper. It's kind of thrown into quite complicated relief, I think, by the internet. There's no doubt that modern technology has made the very useful work of forgetting and therefore the forgiveness that comes through forgetting almost impossible. Um, this is just another hurdle of the modern world. And I think that it's deeply unfortunate because, you know, a humane society is one that is able to forgive, where people are able to say sorry and move on. We've done away with that technologically and also sociologically. And it's one of the most pernicious and damaging aspects of, of our time. And it's, it's literally inhumane. I think we're going to, over the coming years, need to set up, you know, colonies where people who've slipped up can, can go off and join others because ordinary society no longer accepts them. And they've said something wrong, expressed a contrary opinion, etc. And they've been driven out of oh, um, ordinary life. It, it shouldn't be. And it's horrific. But I don't see where intolerance goes other than in that kind of direction. We're, we're driving people into exile. Now, you know, back in ancient Rome, they did this quite a lot. If you offended the government, if you said something bad against the emperor, you would be driven into uh, exile. And there are all sorts of moving accounts of people who you know, had to go off somewhere else because things had gone wrong. And I think we're, you know, we're going to be expecting that sort of um, pretty damaging process in, in our own day. What it's also forcing us to do is to give up on some of the hopes that all of us are born with that somehow we'll be able to get our point of view across. And I think that when people strive to become famous, 
And it might be in, in any realm. Maybe they're going to become a famous musician or a famous writer or a famous politician. The, the original dream is I'm going to have a message and I'm going through effort and through you know, honing that message and making it interesting and lively. I'm going to be able to get through to people and I'm going to be able to share my innermost truths. And that's a very deep longing in human nature. I think because of the world that we live in, that's becoming ever less attractive. I think that the, the fantasy of fame and of communication has oddly really been put under stress by the way in which communal culture now operates. Um, and I think that more, you know, people have always known it, that at some level fame might be dangerous, that vanity in other words, caring what others, what strangers think of you might carry a sting more than ever. We are discovering that. And I think there's um, probably not a, a famous person on the planet who hasn't in recent years questioned whether in the current environment, having your head above the parapet is in any way worth it. It may simply no longer be. It does feel like now to be famous more than ever, a person's self is one that's mediated by others. I often think when you see the kind of discourse around a celebrity online and more than ever it seems harder to maintain an intrinsic self in that because the, the extrinsic now is is so noisy, isn't it? There's nothing wrong with there's nothing wrong with opinions um, as such. And I think you know one of the glories of our age is the ability to pick up on voices that otherwise would not have been able to, to come to the fore. So I don't think it's so much the multiplicity of voices that's the problem. It's when an atmosphere emerges of intolerance and of groupthink and of an inability to nuance a, a, a message. And look, ultimately, the bellwether of all this is what would you say to a person who was in front of you? Um, because I think that the physical presence of another person softens a lot of our worst impulses. Would you tell someone they were an idiot if they were in front of you? No. Might you criticise them? Maybe. Um, you know, would you cancel their entire existence? No. You might, however, you know, ask them if they could take responsibility for something, etc. So well, I think what we need to do uh, in the virtual world is import some of the natural checks and balances on our more vindictive, less thoughtful sides uh, that occurs online and, and, and put that into the, uh, uh, the, the way in which we deal with, with, with people remotely. And of course, the biggest barrier to that is that online there's no recourse or retribution. If you walked up to a stranger on the street and you said... I hate your hat and you're stupid, you know, they might get very angry at you. They might, I don't know, want to punch you. Whereas if you say it online, especially if you're using an alias, you could just walk away, can't you? There's nothing sort of holding you to that comment or that statement. That's right. I think online helps us to forget our full rounded humanity. Um, and, and this is why the technology is so perplexing for us human beings. You know, we've, we, we spent... 99.9% of our evolutionary history as embodied beings. And now we're having to deal with this kind of technology and we can't quite compute. You know, we forget that the person we don't know who's writing a message is a human being, has feelings, you know, will probably think of suicide uh, once they've heard a certain sort of message. It doesn't occur to people because they're simply seeing somebody as a, a line of text on a, on a screen. Similarly, when we are 
broadcasting our, our views, um, we don't much think that these views may carry to tens of thousands of people and again might have um, destructive influences on them or indeed on us. We're needing to learn very painfully some very basic lessons that technology invites us to forget. Something I've been thinking about recently is how much we rely on future plans to navigate or tolerate the present. But at the moment, there's a general feeling that the only way to stay sane and the only way to stay calm is to try and take life day by day rather than thinking, you know, when will this end? What will life be like afterwards? What does the future hold? And I'm sure I'm not the only person who's found it a real challenge to stay rooted in the moment, you know, grounded in the presence. I wondered why you thought that was and if you think the crisis of 2020 will change how rapidly we move through experiences or how much I feel more than ever we're, we've become used to looking ahead. I mean, of course, you know, this used to be um, a, a sort of classic tenet of wisdom to advise people to take it day by day. That's, that's seen as a counsel of kindness and, and a good way to live. But ironically, it tends to be only when we're in pretty difficult circumstances that that appreciation of the day as opposed to the year or the decade that we're in starts to kick in. You know, if you're feeling very unwell, for example, um, and your medical prognosis isn't great, you know, you might be advised to take it just day by day. Um, if you've, um, you know, suffered some sort of mental health crisis, again, the advice may be just, just close your mind to some of the larger questions and just advance modestly um, through the day. Now, that happens to be very, very good advice because every day, there are all sorts of wonders. And we normally rush through these wonders on the way to some imagined glorious future. At the present moment, we don't know what the future is going to hold, and it may not be glorious at all. So the invitation then becomes to try and focus in on things that are happening around us. You know, it's quite a nice day today. There's some nice lunch cooking in an hour. There might be something interesting to watch tonight, but we're not going to think ahead of that. That could seem as if we've drained life of its purpose and its meaning, but at the same time, it may also be the surest way of finding value in things, because precisely it throws us into what religions and wise people have always thought is essential, which is to inhabit the moments that you live. So this may not be the glorious living for the moment that we imagined. In other words, it's not been driven by a quest for further fulfillment. It's actually been driven by something pretty horrific. But it may have a silver lining in it because it's throwing us back on, on some of the smaller pleasures that we tend to neglect when our eyes on the bigger picture. Of course, it all depends on how far you want to step back from our current moment. In a way, the further back you step, um, the more the future seems clear. So in other words, you know, from a 15-year horizon, it's clear that the economy will dip, the economy will revive, capitalism will take a hit, but we will um, retool it and head off in a slightly different direction. So in a way, we can be more confident of the 15-year horizon than of the next eight months. It is very unsettling. Um, I think at this point, we always have to, again, fall back on the wisdom which tells us that nothing is ever certain. You know, when we think, oh my goodness, my certainty has been taken away from me by this particular event, who on earth ever promises us 
security. Security is an illusion. To be born is to be standing you know, on the edge of a precipice at pretty much all times. Think of our physiology. At any moment, you know, a tiny blood clot can um, destroy our minds and reduce us to an extremely impaired state. That can happen to anyone at any time. A tile can fall on our heads, we can slip in the shower, and that's it, that's done with us. So all the time we are on the edge of accidents. Nothing is ever guaranteed. It seems stable, but stability is only ever uh, an illusion based on the fact that we're not standing closely enough to the true turbulence of things. You know, it's like it's like somebody who says, oh, look at the water. It's very quiet, isn't it? It looks very peaceful. But of course, if you look at it through a, a, a very finely lensed instrument, you will see that, in fact, the water conceals all sorts of eddies and activities and minuscule life forms, and that what seemed placid is, in fact, a kind of dizzying and, and turbulent swirl. And life itself is normally a little bit like that. If it ever is in danger of seeming calm, it's simply because you know, we're in between two very large waves and they'll be crashing on top of us um, very soon. So we're very attached as a species to calm and to ideas of calm and we long for calm, we long for stability. Um, but uh, the truth is that we are largely made up of water and the viscous nature of our bodily selves captures some of the eternally kind of roiling and movement-filled uh, inner life and outer world that we're forced to endure. I love that we should always be looking for the eddies inside. How do you think that connects with control? Because anecdotally, at least, I've found that my peers are perhaps more than other generations fixated on maintaining control in what feels more than ever like a chaotic world and that feeling out of control can feel like a sort of failure. It's very easy to understand the longing for control, like the longing for calm. These are very inbuilt impulses. And of course, we are ordering animals. I mean, think of our science, our literature, our, our politics. These are all attempts to order the primal chaos. Think of our cities. Think of what it is to build a city. It's all about taming the wildness and the unpredictability of nature. So this is hard baked in us. It's not one generation, it's humanity. We've always done this and we will always continue to do it. But I think that we also should be aware of the cost and in a way the impossibility of doing this in the long term. That despite our very best efforts to line everything up in a neat row, we will always be submerged, shattered, destroyed and we have to be ready for that. And there are some lovely pieces of wisdom. Think in Taoism of the philosophy of Wu Wei, which is an acceptance of the essential turbulence of life and a surrender to it. And in Taoism, water is, of course, a, uh, the most sacred and important substance because of its ability to mould itself to circumstances. And rather than trying to control things, it's, it's, it's something that um, by nature dissipates and accommodates other objects. And so to become as water, as it were, is a kind of interesting metaphor for how we might deal with things which we desperately want to control, but they, they slip through our fingers like sand. This episode of Doing It Right is sponsored by Spotlight Oral Care. Harm-free oral health care created by two dentist sister founders, Dr. Lisa and Dr. Vanessa Creven, Spotlight Oral Care is a toxin-free, palm oil-free dental range that you can trust. 
I shudder when I hear the words teeth whitening because they remind me of some strips I tried 10 years ago that made my teeth so sensitive that even biting into an apple would make me cry for about six months. But Spotlight Oral Care's teeth whitening system is a different kettle of teeth. Created specifically for no sensitivity and no damage to the enamel so you don't need to avoid icy drinks or cool breezes. Hallelujah. The teeth whitening system is their most popular product and is super easy to use. Place the strips on your teeth for one hour every day for 14 days and the low dose of hydrogen peroxide gets to work, gently removing all the dreaded red wine and coffee stains like magic. Another hero product is their Sonic toothbrush. It's my first ever electric toothbrush, granted, I have nothing to compare it to, but I'm absolutely besotted with it. An electric toothbrush is proven to be so much more effective at removing plaque and stains than a manual toothbrush, and the Sonic gives you that dentist clean feeling every day. It comes with three heads, as well as a protective case to hygienically store your brush when traveling. For 25% off all products, use the code DOINGITRIGHT25 at uk.spotlightoralcare.com. How can we strike the balance of keeping contained, as it were, whilst also loosening the reins? That feels like a sort of impossible middle ground. Well, I think that um, the wrong thing to do is to imagine that being in a middle ground means being like that every day. I think we have to accept that we're creatures who bang against the edges of moods and situations. We know we need to be in the middle. But actually, we go from, you know, lassitude to overexcitement, from, you know, fury to resignation, etc. And we find it very hard to hold two extremes uh, together. We know we should do that, but we should forgive ourselves for not being able to do that, particularly during a pandemic. I mean, a lot's going to be allowed in a, in a pandemic. So sometimes it's easy to say, oh, you're a hypocrite. You know, you, you counseled that we, we should be, you know, relaxed but ordered. And here you are being too relaxed or here you are being too ordered. Well, look. I think there's a difference between loving something and being able to be that thing all the time. And I think so long as you love something, the balanced life sufficiently, that's already half the battle. Many people don't even learn to love the balance. But I think to expect that we will be balanced every day is generally an expectation too far. So I think that accepting that we are all slightly crazy, um, that folly has a deep hold on us, belongs to wisdom knowing that despite our very best efforts, you know, our next moment of crisis is only just around the corner. This is part of what a sane life requires. We're only ever going to be able to lay claim to a very small part of reason. Our rational faculties are tiny and very fragile. And we need to expect this of ourselves and, of course, of others. And from this, stem some rather nice things, including self-forgiveness and forgiveness of others. If we can properly appreciate how hard we find it to stay sane, to be reasonable, to empathise, to put our best foot forward on key issues, we'll learn to do that for other people too. And rather than painting them as villains and monsters and degenerates, we'll learn to see that, like us, they too are dealing with the ordinary fragilities and tensions and temptations of earthly life. I loved something that you said recently about how part of being sane is accepting moments of insanity. Absolutely. I think, you know, sometimes we have this idea of the guru who's calm, who is just some <laughs> you know, epitome of um, uh, wisdom every day. Is that I mean, not you, Alan? 
<laughs> not not even me. Um, such people don't exist. And, you know, people are always very surprised when they read, let's say, the biography of some wise figure like Alan Watts. And they discover that actually the guy had, you know, too many girlfriends and got angry with his staff. And, you know, <laughs> and you think, well, why is this a surprise? Why does this continue to be a surprise? Everybody is fragile. Everybody's human. Even Obama, I'm sure, is, you know, a real pain to deal with at home, etc. So there are no secular saints and there are definitely no religious saints. There are only human beings. And rather than this being a depressing realization, as I say, it is the beginning of, of kind of friendship and a more humane world. Because, you know, we began by thinking about ideals. Ideals make us intolerant. If you expect that somebody is perfect and then they put a foot wrong, my goodness, they'll slam you. So it's uh, never wrong to advertise one's one's humanity. I mean, this you know this should be told to any couple on an early date. You know, think <laughs> of couples on an early dinner date. Um, rather than trying to vaunt their skills and and talk about you know their ideal plans for the future of, of their lives, much better for these people to say look, this is how I'm a bit mad. This is how I've got issues. This is how I can't cope. Um, this is what drives me mad. You know, this is a far better introduction to the reality of someone. And one could say, well, then how can you fall in love with such a, a person? Well, I think precisely you do start falling in love when you start to know somebody as a fully rounded human being. Before that, there can be admiration. There can be longing even. There can be a sense that you've come into contact with a perfect being. But I think real love does depend on uh, a sense of, of somebody as, as fragile. And look, you know, we all know how to do this with the people that we can love better than anyone, which is our own children and children more generally. You know, we have a hard time loving adults. We're much better at loving children. And the reason for this is that we don't expect children to be perfect. So when children are bad tempered, when they say something a bit disgusting, when they throw things on the floor, when they're fed up and tired, we don't go, you're bad, you're evil, I'm cancelling you. We go, oh, they probably need a nap or they're having a bad day. We know that they are fundamentally trying to be good against huge odds. And this is something we find so hard to do around our fellow human beings. Do you think we do that because we think that children are still developing their emotional intelligence, but we expect in adulthood that journey to have finished, when of course it, it doesn't? Absolutely, exactly. It doesn't at all. And so we should be frank. I mean, look, you know, one of the great problems that we cause ourselves is that we think there's a division between childhood and adulthood and that we'll, you know, somewhere around the age of 18, we'll suddenly uh, morph into one of these amazing things called adults and adults don't cry and adults aren't afraid and adults know what's going on. Adults don't have regrets and adults aren't stupid. Well, of course, Adults are everything that a toddler is. And inside every adult, you know, three millimeters down, there's the toddler. No earlier version of us ever dies. It simply hangs around, normally waiting until past eight o'clock in the evening to re-emerge and um, do its worst. And so we shouldn't expect people aren't adults all the time. They are adults in moments. In fact, even children are very adult in moments. And we are also in moments very small uh, children. And we need to accept this in ourselves and we need to accept that in others. I think something I'm realising is a complete fallacy when you're growing up is I always assume that in your 30s, as I am now, that you would be less terrified of the world. But actually, I think I'm probably more terrified and more aware of my own fragility now I'm an adult. I think that out of kindness, 
we do a lot of editing for children. We hide from them all sorts of quite dispiriting things about life. And one of the things that children feel often when they're growing up is other people know, don't they? They, they think, you know, the teacher knows, big people know. And as a parent, as I'm sure you'll know, you know, we try to project an image of, of sanity and competence. And, and we do this because we're, we're kind and we're responsible. And, and, and so we should. But of course, the truth is that, again, millimetres below the adult surface, no one knows what on earth's going on. The teachers don't know, the politicians don't know. MI5 it's a shared delusion. <laughs> yes. And so we're all, you know, no one knows and no one cares. These are the two big themes of, of, of life. And children don't know this, but we do as, uh, as adults. And I would totally agree with you. Life only gets more mysterious, scarier, and um, less clear as we, as we go on. Um, I've reached 50 and, you know, again, it's got worse since, <laughs> since my 30s. Um, God knows what it'll be like in 10 or 20 or 30 years if I make it that long. That's so, very comforting. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Um, but again, this, this is why friendship, and I, and I mean friendship really in the largest sense, is so important. We are extremely small creatures in a vast, turbulent universe. How are we ever going to get through this? Um, you know, we talk a lot about romantic love and you know, so be it. But really what we want within this envelope we call romantic love is something that I think we more perhaps more fairly call friendship, which is to be understood, to understand, to share our vulnerability, to show ourselves as we truly are to people who have the complexity of mind and the generosity of spirit to interpret us correctly and to see us as we would wish to be seen. This happens so seldom, and yet it's such a deep longing. You know, if you said to people, you know, would you like three good friends or an extra, you know, £10,000 on your salary? You know, we'd all grab the friends. We know how important the friends are. Friendship is something that, you know, is integral to our sense of mental well-being. But of course, loneliness is far more likely where we're going to end up. And, you know, it's another big theme of life. We're all far lonelier than we want to admit that we are, because there's so much about us that is not quite acceptable or interesting or of concern to those immediately around us. We can't get a lot of what we are across to those in the vicinity. That's why people want to become writers, because writing seems to offer a capacity for strangers, people further away from us, to understand precious bits of us. I mean, good luck with that project, but um, it's it's a fraught project. But it's, you know, the ambition is very beautiful. And sometimes it, it, it works. But but it's, you know, loneliness is endemic because the ability to share who we really are with another person is one of the rarest things in the universe. What a lot of people seem to be considering during the pandemic is what our social lives will look like again, because for many people, they had become perhaps a little bit out of control. We were maintaining so many relationships, our social groups are kind of continuing ad infinitum. And yet one of my friends said to me recently, I haven't missed anyone during this pandemic. She said, it's, it's really made me wonder about what my friendships will look like on the other side. And that's not to dismiss how lonely people have been. But I wonder if it's making us think about the way in which we were socialising or the way we were spending our leisure time, having had that taken away from us. One good rule of thumb is, if you haven't felt the need to be in touch with a certain person during the lockdown, 
maybe that person doesn't really belong in your social life. You know, if, if you've gone through one of the great cataclysms of the last hundred years without any impulse to check in on this person or they to check in on you, do they really belong in your life? I mean, you know, is, is this somebody who you really care about? Perhaps not. I mean, look, it's not an ironclad rule, but it's a it's a useful provocation, really. I think that a solid core of friends is, of course, preferable to a vast, dispersed and more fragile network. Of course, it's important also to put out feelers and to, to explore new connections. And the, the internet is wonderful for allowing us to do that. So I'm not against exploring new contacts, but, but, but it, I think it's really about what's the direction of travel. And I think the direction of travel should always be towards a greater and deeper kind of, of connections. Don't forget that we're tribal creatures, that for most of our evolutionary history, we lived among bands of 20 to 30 people that we would know very well. They would know us, they would support us, and we would support them. I think that's a very deep longing that survives even in these modern industrial times uh, when people are, are much more likely to focus on either one special partner or you know a family unit. I've had so many conversations with people who say things along the lines of, wouldn't it be nice to live communally, to, to group together with eight people, 10 people, and get a house and, and share the chores and share the childcare and share the burdens and live together as, as units. So much in the modern world conspires against that. Mortgages, that the sale of electrical equipment, which is always only about one family uh, unit, etc. Everything is geared towards you know, the individual or the, or the very nuclear uh, unit. But I, I think that we would all so much benefit from, from deeper, uh, smaller uh, groups. I, I, I would love to start a commune one day and, um, and, and live among a close-knit group of, of friends whose um, joys and sorrows I would share. That's really interesting hearing you talk about tribalism in a positive way, because when we think about tribalism now, we tend to think about it as something that perhaps hinders debate. Look, I think that it's very possible to imagine tribes dedicated to some pretty horrible values, um, tribes committed to you know, nastiness and, and prejudice, but also one can imagine tribes dedicated to love and kindness. So there's nothing wrong with the tribe per se. It's what the tribe is dedicated to that's really going to defend or, or negate the issue. Look, ultimately, it would be lovely to live in the loveliest tribes um, dedicated to the highest values of, of civilization and generosity towards one another. I like the sound of a lovely tribe. That sounds quite dreamy right now. I'm particularly interested in your thoughts on interior versus exterior progress. As Hans Rosling lays out in his brilliantly cheering book, Factfulness, the world has unequivocally progressed. There's less poverty, less disease. On average, people are living freer, healthier, safer and better educated lives. But internally, if we look at the statistics, we're growing more anxious. The most recent global figures revealed that 264 million people suffer from some sort of anxiety disorder. Where's that disconnect coming from, do you think? I think as one problem recedes, another arrives. Humans um, very rarely have uh, you know, a clear horizon in terms of anxieties. If you're not worrying about one thing, you'll be worrying about something else. There are specific illnesses of the modern age created by individualism, urban life, technology, uh, science, uh, and ideologies that go with them, our views of romantic love, of sexuality, of work. All of these can place a, a very high burden on our state of mind and can destroy 
you know, some of the harmony and peace that oddly we might have felt in more materially simple conditions. So I think this is just a sort of paradox of, of progress. And we need to be very, very careful whenever we think that something is moving forward and ask ourselves, what might be being lost as well mm. as progressing? Um, you know, if somebody moves from a village to a suburb in a, in a, a large tower block made of concrete, um, some things may show up on a Hans Rosling graph as a positive. You know, this person is probably better fed, their heating will be looked after for them in the winter, etc. But they might have lost other things that are not coming up on certain dashboards, because we're not yet measuring as accurately as we should things like loneliness or uh, an end of a sense of purpose, etc. So some of these less tangible psychological ills tend to get missed when we speak of of progress. I think we're just going to have to build better dashboards, dashboards that are more alive to what really counts. And uh, I, I think, you know, we, ultimately it is possible to measure true happiness and true progress. It may just be much more multifaceted and elusive beast than we've been used to considering so far. I feel like we've sort of been lulled into, or at least I have felt maybe lulled into the idea that progress is only ever good and that gain is exactly that. It's only ever gain. But in order to gain something, you have to lose something as well. I, I mean, definitely. And it's it's one of the most painful of uh, of lessons. We, we, we know it at, at the level of individual life. You know, we, we have more money than when we were students. But along with that more money comes greater responsibility. We, we may know more, but we may be older. And so our bodies are more fragile, etc, etc. So there are individual examples. And then, of course, there are societal uh, examples, you know, um, uh, the society is richer, but there are far fewer trees around. And at the moment, we haven't been able to measure what it means for us to lose a tree or to lose a butterfly or to lose um, mm. an empty afternoon to progress and to the religion of hard work. And so we can sometimes end up surprised that things are not better than they are. It's, as I say, because we've not been looking at the right things on the dashboard of happiness. And some things are pretty impossible to measure. I'm always quite sceptical of um, the happiness GDP that we see being measured at the moment because it sort of puts forward this idea that happiness is something we should have all the time rather than it being a contrastive state. When you answered that happiness quiz that day, you might have been having a really shit day, so you weren't feeling terribly happy. And then that gets logged as a sort of happiness agenda. Yes, I mean, I think one of the hardest things to accept about ourselves is that fundamentally we are creatures of mood. And we keep thinking that we're going to reach a sort of solid state. And what we tend to find is that we're much, as creatures, much more akin to something like the weather, which is constantly showing changes, where there's always a cloud somewhere on the horizon, where there is nothing stable. You know, it's very, very rare for the weather to stay stable. And it's similarly very rare for a mood to stay stable. There's always something new coming along. And I think when we imagine, you know, what might it feel like to be 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, we, we always tend to imagine, well, it will mean one thing, and it will probably be quite a stable thing, either horrible or, or brilliant. Um, this is the mistake that couples fall into. And I think it helps to explain the popularity of marriage. For many of us, what it means to get married is essentially to reach a steady state in the questions of love that have otherwise disturbed and perturbed younger years. And we think, well, I'll get married, and then all these questions will end up stable. And what we find is that 
They don't. All the questions, you know, what am I doing? What do I want? Mm. Uh, who am I? Who are they? What does it feel like? Etc. Etc. All goes on in all the dizzying confusion that we hoped to uh, to resolve. And I think it's just it, it's a lesson we we have to keep reminding ourselves. It's you know, if you go on holiday, expect moods, not a, a permanent you know twelve day reality. If if you're going to go for a job, expect moods, not one conclusion about what that job means. Everything that you do will be subject to moods, highs and lows. It will go up, it will go down constantly and unfortunately. And so when you're in an up mood, sometimes it's very tempting to go right. I figured life out, and really what wants to say is. No, you haven't. You're just in a very good mood. And that mood will pass. And when you're in a very bad mood, everything will be utterly despairing. You will have failed at everything. Everything will be a disaster. And will that mean that everything is a disaster? No, it'll just mean you're in a bad mood. And so you have to accept the good mood and the bad mood for what they really are, a temporary state of mind. How much does that link with the positive psychology movement? I have quite conflicted feelings about it. But at the same time, the limitations of positive psychology is that it almost totally dismisses structural or systemic issues. For example, someone very poor or someone experiencing racism cannot merely turn inward in order to find their happiness. What are your thoughts around the idea that we are responsible for our own happiness and that success lies within I mean, anything called positive psychology um, sets an alarm bell ringing for me. I'm I'm generally very suspicious of anything that that announces its positivity too loudly because I think there's a there's a coercive. I think I think you're hinting a slightly coercive side, not just you know do do try and step into the garden of happiness, but why haven't you stepped into the garden of happiness? What's wrong with you for not being happy? I think that um, it's much more generous and much truer to who we are as human beings to, you know, if I was uh, going to create a, a philosophy and a psychology, it would be one of melancholy. Melancholy is a beautiful word, popular in the 19th century, less popular now. But essentially, for me, it, it, it sits nicely between kind of rage and bitterness and despair. It's none of those things, though it's around that territory. It's the best possible way of accommodating oneself with the kind of complexities and pains of life. Um, to answer your specific point about responsibility, of course, luck, bad luck and good luck are huge factors in what happens to people in life. And it's the eternal curse and sin of the United States to have proposed a philosophy of self-determination, which goes way beyond what reality actually warrants. The notion that you can make yourself and become anything is simply total nonsense or rather partial interestingly partial nonsense. We are, of course, subject to pressures, sociological, psychological, biological, let alone viral, um, in terms of what we can achieve and what our freedom for manoeuvre is. So it's very tempting at a certain point to say, you know, I can control my destiny. But of course, none of us can. If we are you know, wise, we will know that our destiny is always an interplay between our own efforts and the winds of fate. And we can be grateful when those winds are heading in a good direction, while always not knowing that at any point they could turn in a, in a, in a more grievous uh, kind of direction. And also it feels a little bit unfair to say to someone who has so many things in the way of happiness to say, you know, if you just, if you just try hard enough, if you just want it hard enough, you can have that happiness, you can have that life that you deserve. I agree. It's, I mean, it's crazy. It's, it's uh, you know, along the lines of telling someone to cheer up 
or <laughs> telling someone who's got vertigo to stop being so silly. I mean, um, we are prisoners uh, of all sorts of things in our minds, and it can be as hard for somebody to you know, get themselves together uh, as it can be hard, as I say, for someone who's suffering from vertigo to, to be reassured when you tell them the balcony won't collapse. It, it's just the mind is a, is a complex organ and um, uh, uh, advising somebody to cheer up is, is not the way to create movement. I was interested by your use of the word melancholia because I know what you mean. It's not a word that conjures up particularly cheering images. Is that more a reflection that what we should be seeking is a contentment and that the most contented life comes from accepting that there will be peaks and there will be troughs? Yes. I mean, look, if you look at the life of anyone who seems to be content, they are on the whole people who would appreciate a really tasty apple, a quiet moment in the sun, um, a day where there's no disaster, an evening where there's nothing planned, uh, a weekend when there's a good book to read. They are not people who are planning the next 300 years for humanity. They're not people who are, you know, launching rockets or restlessly trying to rearrange nations. Um, these are not recipes for happiness, uh, as we know. It's incredibly hard for us to give the quiet life the prestige it needs. Quiet lives, you know, are actually very noble and um, enormous achievements to be able to live without despair, without fury, without wild ambition, without terror, in a relatively narrow bounds that your circumstances afford you, to, to get along more or less with those around you, to be as kind as you can to people you come into contact with. These are all enormous achievements. It sounds like an ordinary life, but an ordinary life is actually an extraordinary life when we think about the kinds of things that actually demands of us if done uh, to, to any level of, of success. So absolutely, a certain modesty of ambition does seem to be the root of happiness. Here's to seeking a quiet life. Thank you so much, Alan de Botton, for coming on Doing It Right. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this episode of Doing It Right, please do subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts so that you can enjoy more episodes out every Monday. Mm-hmm.